0: This is Crimes of the Centuries. Close your eyes and picture your favorite sitcom. What do you see? Probably a living room, right? Maybe a coffee shop? Occasionally, there might be a workplace to shake things up a bit. But tell me, were any of you picturing a Nazi labor camp with multiple Nazis as supporting characters? If you don't know what I'm talking about already, I venture that you'll be surprised to learn that not only did such a show exist, but it aired on American television a mere 20 years after the end of the Second World War. For those who weren't obsessed with TV land in the 1990s, the show is Hogan's Heroes, from Inside Edition. It's one of the most beloved and strangest sitcoms ever, Hogan's Heroes. It takes place in, of all places, a German prison camp during World War II, not exactly fertile grounds for comedy. Bob Crane played the title character, Colonel Robert Hogan, an American POW in a labor camp. Along with a ragtag group of Allied soldiers, Colonel Hogan fought the Nazis from inside their very own camps escaping to blow up a railroad bridge only to be brought back to their bunks when the bumbling German guard did his final rounds. Realistic, this was not, but it was a real TV show. As happens all too often in Hollywood, once the popular show ended, Crane's phone stopped ringing, and less than eight years after his face disappeared from the small screen, he was found dead in Arizona. Now, nearly 50 years later, Crane's death is still a mystery. How did this handsome TV star end up dead in a Scottsdale motel room? That's what we're exploring in this week's longer-than-usual episode of Crimes of the Centuries. Robert Edward Crane was born in Connecticut, the youngest of two sons born to Rosemary and Alfred Thomas Crane. At age 11, he began to play drums and was soon organizing small parades through the neighborhood with his friends. By high school, he was skilled enough to join the orchestra, marching, and jazz bands, and he also played in youth orchestras in the Connecticut and Norwalk symphonies, which means he was either extraordinarily good or he was just the only kid in the region whose parents let him have a drum kit. Either way, Crane graduated from Stamford High School in 1946, and two years later joined the Connecticut National Guard for a term of two years. Halfway through his commitment, he married his high school sweetheart, Anne Terzian, and once he was honorably discharged in 1950, they began to build their family, eventually having three children together, Robert, Deborah, and Karen. And the same year as his discharge, he focused on the next phase of his career. With an amazing voice and podcasts still decades in the future, Crane had to get a job with, like, a real radio station. As in, he had to get dressed and go to another building that had a microphone instead of just going to, I don't know, a room in his basement. Crazy. Beginning at a station in Hornell, a small town in western New York, he graduated to bigger and bigger stations over the next few years, hopping from Hornell to Bristol and Connecticut and then to Bridgeport, a bigger station that covered a portion of the New York metro area. By 1956, he had been hired to host a morning show for CBS Radio, but this job took Bob to the opposite coast, at the flagship station in Los Angeles. While in Los Angeles, Bob Crane started to make a name for himself. It didn't hurt that he happened to hit right as radio became a cultural phenomenon and radio hosts were becoming celebrities, along with the musicians whose records they played. In his morning show, Bob earned the nickname King of the L.A. Airwaves by offering up witty banter with guests like Frank Sinatra and Bob Hope, even playing the drums with some bands. Here's Crane chatting with Rod Serling of The Twilight Zone.
1: Rod Serling is a name that's been associated with the television industry since what year was it that you broke into television in a big way, Rod? 49. Was it not that long 1949, I did my first TV. And what was the the show? It was a a show called Stars Over Hollywood, done out here as a half hour. And I think I got all of a hundred bucks for the first script, Bob. You wrote, you wrote the script. Uh, for those of you who may not be familiar with television, Rod Serling is one of the leading writers. Uh, actually, more than a writer. What is a better word than writer? Writer is a good thing. Yeah, that's a fair sober good for any... Uh, so you made hundred dollars on your first writing effort. They got what they paid for, Bob. It's as simple as that.
0: According to The Murder of Bob Crane by Robert Graysmith that's the same author who wrote the Zodiac book that was turned into a movie, by the way, Crane became one of the very first DJs in the U.S. to earn more than $100,000 a year, which translates to over a million dollars today. Being in L.A., it was only a matter of time before Crane started looking for avenues into acting. With his new industry contacts, he was able to guest host for Johnny Carson, Not for his nighttime talk show, but for a daytime game show called Who Do You Trust? Crane also got guest roles on other shows. According to his IMDb page, he would appear in one or two episodes of several shows of the late 1950s or early 60s, The Alfred Hitchcock Hour, General Electric Theater, hosted by none other than Ronald Reagan, and he had uncredited roles on The Twilight Zone and Return to Peyton Place. After comedian Carl Reiner appeared as a guest on his radio show in 1962, Crane convinced him to cast him on The Dick Van Dyke Show. Bob was cast in the season two episode Somebody Has to Play Cleopatra as neighbor Harry Rogers. This character, played by Crane, was cast in a community play as Mark Antony as the women all vie for Cleopatra while the husbands watch in jealousy. Donna Reed, not only the star but the producer of The Donna Reed Show, the first television show to feature a mother at its center, saw Crane on The Dick Van Dyke Show and offered him a guest role. He was only supposed to appear in one episode as neighbor Dr. David Kelsey, but the popularity of the character prompted Reed to bring him back as a regular cast member. Eventually, starring in more than 60 episodes, Crane also kept his day job at KNX Studios before leaving The Donna Reed Show at the end of 1964. According to Crime Library, Crane was fired from the show because producers felt his character had become too suggestive for a series known for its wholesomeness, but it's unclear whether that was the fault of the writers, or of Crane, or maybe both. Still, Crane was riding high and was soon offered the starring role in a new sitcom in development at CBS in 1965. Yep, this would be the one about World War II POWs called Hogan's Heroes. He would play Colonel Robert Hogan, the highest-ranking Allied officer in the POW camp who oversaw a ragtag group of prisoners and continually outsmarted the bumbling German guards. In the opening scene of the pilot episode... Sergeant Schultz is doing prisoner checks, and when there's one less than expected, Schultz says to Hogan, Oh, please, not again. And when the Germans release the dogs, one of Hogan's men tells the dogs, No, not yet, you dummy. The dogs sit quietly to wait. Get it? Because in the world of Hogan's heroes, the prisoners not only outsmarted their captors, but their guard dogs too. Get it? The show's premise was always considered a little controversial for a sitcom. Here's a quick promo with Bob Crane in which he's chatting with radio personality Stan Freeberg. We're talking
1: here with Bob Crane, star of CBS Television's hilarious new Friday night show debuting this fall in color, Hogan's Heroes. What's it all about, Bob? Well, it's all about World War II. Well, that sounds pretty uproarious so far. <laughs> now, where's it take place? In a prisoner of war camp in Germany. Always a good situation, comedy locale. What's the plot? Well, you um, see, we have an escape tunnel dug under the barracks. Mm-hmm. We have our own tailor-making civilian clothes. Well, we can make counterfeit German money, phony passports, guns. All right
0: under the noses of the German guards? Yeah,
1: and each week, we nearly get caught smuggling the men out. Huh,
0: what are some of the other amusing
1: ingredients? German police dogs, machine guns, the Gestapo. <laughs> <laughs> Just a few of the laugh-provoking elements to be seen this fall on Hogan's Heroes. Shall we say, if you liked World War II,
0: you'll love Hogan's Heroes. Let's not say that, no. American audiences found the show to be hilarious, and it finished in the top 10 in its first year. Viewers couldn't get enough of Hogan and his team running circles around Colonel Klink, making fools of the Nazis. Fun fact, Colonel Klink was played by Werner Klemperer, a German of Jewish descent who had fled Germany when Hitler took power. Here's Crane interviewing his co-star, Klemperer, for a show on the U.S. Armed Forces radio network in 1969. We
1: have with us the commandant of Hogan's Heroes, uh, Werner Klemperer, who I don't want to say he's a great dramatic actor. Would you say that? I would say that I'm slightly great.
0: Klemperer was only one of several Jewish cast members who had been intimately affected by the Holocaust. He won Outstanding Supporting Actor Emmys in 1968 and 1969 for satirizing the very men from whom his family fled. In the six years the show was on, Crane was also nominated twice for an Emmy, in 1966 and 67, but he lost both times. By 1971, Americans were suffering from war fatigue. The peak U.S. involvement in Vietnam had been in the spring of 1969, and the headlines at the time promised that the half million plus U.S. troops sent over there meant that the war would begin to fade soon. Yet the conflict in Vietnam had expanded into Laos and Cambodia, and four students had been killed by National Guardsmen at Kent State. A show about war, even a funny show, wasn't exactly what audiences wanted anymore. Additionally, CBS president Robert Wood wanted to overhaul the station's programming, leading to the cancellation of several shows. They had Sullivan show, The Beverly Hillbillies, and Hogan's Heroes. According to True Crime Library, Crane was deeply disappointed in Wood's decision, saying, quote, "'I know a show can end in mid-sentence, "'but we were still a hit, still at the top. "'I just don't understand.'" After the cancellation, Crane's roles grew smaller and smaller. In 1973, he scored the lead role in a Disney TV movie, Superdad, and also bought the rights to a comedic play called Beginner's Luck. He began to tour the play, as both the director and the star, at dinner theaters in Florida, California, and Arizona. When he returned home between theater dates, Crane managed to book guest spots on shows like Police Woman, Quincy M.E., and the iconic camp classic, The Love Boat. Four years after the cancellation of Hogan's Heroes, Crane hoped his luck was changing when NBC greenlit The Bob Crane Show in 1975. But the show performed poorly, far poorer than the network had anticipated they canceled it after 13 of the 14 planned episodes aired. In an interview with the Beaver County Times, Crane was weary about the cancellation, saying, quote, "...maybe realistically, in a career, you only have one hit series. Maybe Hogan's was mine." End quote. As Crane lamented wistfully to the reporter, he admitted he wasn't going to be in the running for the latest Scorsese movie, But he still had dreams of being cast as a drummer in a movie set in the 40s. A chance to combine his loves. And yet, the photo the Beaver County Times ran along with the article was a press photo from Hogan's Heroes. A show that had been off the air for five years at this point. It seemed that neither Crane nor America could let go of Colonel Hogan. With Bob Crane's professional life floundering, you might be wondering how his personal life was faring. In short, not awesome. If you remember, Crane married Ann Terzian in 1949 while he was serving in the Connecticut Army National Guard. According to the Youngstown Vindicator, the couple had three children, Robert David, born in 1951, Deborah Ann, born in 1959, and Karen Leslie, born in 1961. But Crane, like his most famous character, was reportedly a womanizer. His eldest son, Robert, eventually wrote a book about his father's life and career, which included all the intimate details none of us want to know about our fathers. Robert explained that while Crane was still married to Anne, he used his celebrity to meet women and collect nude photos of them. In the very first season of Hogan's Heroes, Crane began an affair with Cynthia Lynn, who played the only woman in the show, Colonel Kling's secretary, Helga. And when Lynn was replaced in season two with Patricia Olsen, stage name Sigrid Valdis, Crane began an affair with her instead. In love with Patty, he wanted to marry her but was extremely conflicted. To author Robert Graysmith, Crane's Catholicism was at the heart of his conflict. In June 1970, he divorced Anne and only four months later, he married Patty on the set of Hogan's Heroes, surrounded by their co-stars. Patty gave birth to a son the following year and they adopted a daughter a few years after that. Robert Jr. later claimed in his book that Patty was already pregnant when they were married and that since Crane had a vasectomy in 1968, it was highly unlikely that he was blood related to his new little brother. Crane's marriage to Patty proved highly tumultuous with his children remembering massive fights in their Brentwood home. Robert Jr. recalled, quote, on my side of the family, there were these members who were hated by Patty. She pretty much wanted my dad all to herself, end quote. But in 1976, the relationship between Bob and Patty was still intact when he took his play on the road, which of course... Meant more encounters with women who weren't his wife. By 1978, Crane and Patty were in the midst of a divorce, with both sides alleging spousal abuse. Victoria Berry, an actor in Beginner's Luck, told police that Patty had thrown something at Bob's face and he had had to get stitches. In her divorce decree, Patty alleged that Crane had slapped her and frequently tried to show their son Scotty adult films. Crane's interest in sex had evolved quite a bit since his time in the Connecticut National Guard. According to the crime library, porn was a major pastime, and Crane enjoyed bragging about how many women he took to bed. He wasn't exactly kind when talking about his sexual partners either, describing them in crude and even dehumanizing terms. While filming Hogan's Heroes, his interest was on a simmer, satisfied by fans and on-set affairs. But after the show was canceled, there were no distractions to prevent that simmer from escalating into an outright boil. He enjoyed what many in the 1960s would have considered to be racy or even deviant sex group sex, BDSM, that sort of thing, but no kink shaming here. Through his wealth and fame, Crane had access to worlds that the average person didn't. He visited nightclubs and would leave with two or three women. On other nights, he would visit a dominatrix or perhaps visit a sex dungeon in one of his friends' homes, a dungeon that he personally financed. According to Graysmith, Crane spent thousands of dollars to build these dungeons, so many that the carpenters began giving him discount rates on the construction. While filming the Disney film Superdad in the San Francisco Bay Area, Crane explored the area's underground sex world. One contact he made was a former dominatrix called Tiffany Moonlight. One of the things Tiffany would do for him was help connect Crane to possible sexual partners. Sometimes this meant other clients of hers, and other times it meant she'd place personal ads for him. These weren't ads you could walk into a classifieds office and place. They needed a specialized outlet, like a swingers club mailing list for those interested in BDSM. But Crane couldn't place those ads himself. He couldn't put his home address, obviously. So he had post office boxes all over town to gather the responses. A guy named John Carpenter, not the director, also encouraged and helped Crane with his sexual exploits. After serving in Korea, Carpenter discovered he had a talent for working with electronics, first installing radios and in aircrafts, and by the mid-1960s, Working in L.A. as a Sony salesman by day, while teaching celebrities like Hitchcock and Elvis how to use a brand new tech, the VCR. When Crane met Carpenter, introduced by Hogan's co-star and future Family Feud host Richard Dawson, it wasn't only the VCR that he wanted to know how to use. It was also a video recorder. Without Nielsen ratings to judge his success, Crane could only judge his status by his sexual success. Crane took nude photos of the woman he slept with and kept them in an album that he was more than happy to show anyone that happened to sit down with him. But he kept the home movies for his private collection. According to Crime Library, some of his partners were delighted to have his encounters committed to film. But Crane apparently did not ask for consent from all of his partners, nor did all of them even know they were being filmed while having sex with him. Crane and Carpenter had a somewhat codependent relationship, even having joint sexual encounters. Helena Katz, in her book Cold Cases, Famous Unsolved Mysteries, Crimes and Disappearances in America, described how when Carpenter left Sony for another company... He arranged his business trips to coincide with the tour schedule of Beginner's Luck, Crane's Play, so they could continue their escapades. And that is how both of them ended up together in Scottsdale, Arizona, in the summer of 1978. It was the end of June 1978. Crane and Carpenter were two athletic middle-aged men living their best lives. The Windmill Dinner Theater chain had leased apartment 132A at the Winfield Apartments, Hughes' housing for their productions, and Crane had been staying there since early June. Carpenter arrived from L.A. on the evening of June 25th, and by the next morning, the men were swimming, looking for conquests, and watching Crane's video collection. Over the next three days, the two friends carried on basically the way they did in L.A., They worked through the day, but quickly shifted to picking up as many women as possible and playing with their electronics. By Crane's own account, in a radio interview given just six days before his last night alive, he was in a happy place overall.
1: I have no regrets in in any of my life at this point. You can't look backwards. No. No. And the terrible thing is I'll be 50 in two weeks. I want to go out swinging, as they say.
0: On Crane's last night, June 28th, he went out with Carolyn, or Carol, per some sources, Beret. He had met her three weeks earlier at a Scottsdale bar. The 46-year-old later remembered him being visibly upset because of a fight he'd had with his wife over their divorce proceedings. Beret said most of their conversation that night was about Crane's relationship with Patty. This could be because he actually had seen Patty very recently, according to the younger Robert Crane.
1: Ten days before his murder, on Father's Day, Patty and her son Scotty show up unannounced at my dad's apartment in Scottsdale. Now, they're in the middle of a bad, bad, nasty divorce. Knock at the door. Hi, we're here. My dad just about flipped out. He couldn't believe this. They come in, they spend a very uncomfortable day or so there.
0: So it was about a week and a half after this that Crane tried to convince Beret to come to his apartment for a tryst. But it was after 2 a.m., and she said she really had to get home. After saying goodbye, she drove away at nearly 2.30 a.m., not knowing she would be one of the last people to ever speak to Bob Crane. Carpenter, of course, was another He was supposed to return to L.A. the next morning, so he called Crane when he got back to his motel room half a block away. According to Carpenter, Crane was bitter about Carolyn going home instead of wanting to go home with him, and Carpenter said that the two men really didn't say goodbye. They just ended the call, assuming they would be seeing each other later. The next morning, Carpenter hurriedly checked out of the Sunburst Hotel. He told the manager there, Kathy Nugent, that he had gotten the time of his flight wrong, that it was earlier than he had thought, and he had to run to the airport. According to Graysmith, Carpenter couldn't drive his rental car back because of something wrong with the taillights, so he asked Kathy to call him a taxi. While it was strange, she didn't think anything more of it, until later, when the police arrived. Carpenter's behavior after he got back to L.A. also rubbed the younger Robert Crane wrong. He said,
1: I'm sitting at the apartment that I shared with my dad at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, or 3.30, and I get a phone call from John Carpenter. And John says, uh, hi, I'm back in L.A., because I knew he was coming back that day. Uh, Listen, if there, you know, if you need anything, let me know. And uh, I said, you know, everything okay? And yeah, yeah, you know, talk to you soon. Let me know if you need anything. And that was it. I was probably on the phone with him for... I don't know, maybe a minute or two, hung up, thought, hmm.
0: Soon, everyone would discover what had happened to Bob Crane in that Arizona hotel room. At 2 p.m. on June 29th, Victoria Berry pulled into the parking lot of the Winfield Apartments in Scottsboro, worry furrowing her brow. She and Bob had been scheduled to appear at a luncheon for a local television academy, but he didn't show up and he didn't call. His rental car was in the lot, so she went right to the door for 132A and knocked. After several knocks went unanswered, she tried the knob and it easily turned. Cautiously walking in, she saw debris around the room, but no Bob. Thinking maybe he could be in the pool, Victoria walked toward the back of the apartment and into the bedroom, the room with the best view of the pool. According to Robert Graysmith, when Victoria stepped into the bedroom, she could see a form lying on the bed. The seemingly sleeping figure was on its right side, knees slightly bent, in a semi-fetal position. Quote, The left hand was tucked slightly under the chin, the right arm stretched languidly along the length of the body, an ominous dark pool spilled from the area of the head, and filled the well of the pillow like long flowing hair." Victoria thought she was staring at a woman in Crane's bed that had tragically died by suicide. She figured maybe he had gone to get help. But then she recognized a watch on the wrist and saw Crane's glasses still on the bedside table. She remembered later that she leaned over, trying to figure out if the body was her friend, but the damage done to him was so bad. he was unrecognizable. The other details that she remembered included a ligature around Crane's neck, a black plastic electrical cord tied in a single right-handed twist knot. There were no signs of struggle, and the words of an investigator for the medical examiner's office, quote, "It looked like somebody walked in on him while he was in bed and smacked him in the head a couple of times, end quote. Stumbling back, Victoria fled the apartment and ran into another woman who called the Scottsdale police. By 2.50, the parking lot was full of patrol cars, ambulances, and forensics vans. Lieutenant Ron Dean was called in to take the lead in the case, arriving at the Winfield Apartments 10 minutes later. The facts of the case were pretty straightforward. There were no signs of forced entry at either the front door or the door to the pool area. Those who knew Crane said he was a light sleeper and would have jumped up at the sound of an intruder. This led detectives to believe Crane may have let his killer in, which would point them toward a female killer, especially when they learned of his sexual history. This opinion was further solidified when the detectives realized many women didn't know they'd been recorded while being intimate. But the medical examiner disagreed. Dr. Thomas Jarvis said the cause of death was blunt force trauma and that given the depth of the wound and the blood spatter in the room, the killer had to be male. But given Crane's sexual past, there could still be a woman involved even if the actual culprit was a man, perhaps a jealous boyfriend or lover or someone who learned their friend had been videotaped without consent. Now, this videotape business might not have become public knowledge if Crane's wife hadn't made it so. According to Crane's son, Robert. The reason it came
1: out was his second wife, Patty, who was on Hogan's Heroes as the secretary, uh, after my dad died, she put it out on a website and it became public knowledge. This was something my dad did uh, for his personal use. He didn't throw it out there. But with the World Wide Web, She threw it out, and everybody knows.
0: In fairness, that doesn't seem entirely true. For starters, not all of the women knew they were being recorded, and that's a violation on its own. Furthermore, Crane supposedly did share these videos with other people. In a separate interview, the younger Robert even said this.
1: I became aware of uh, his double life when I was a teenager, probably 15, 16 years old. I started seeing some of his videos, not with him in it, but other people in it.
0: Anyway, even with all of these possibilities, Dean and Scottsdale detectives homed in on John Carpenter as their prime suspect. When Carpenter called Crane's apartment just after 3 p.m., officers assumed he was trying to figure out how much the police knew and whether they suspected him or not. Victoria Berry answered the call, but she handed the phone to Lieutenant Dean, who spoke to Carpenter for a few minutes. Dean gave him no information, but thought it was pretty suspicious that Carpenter didn't once ask why police were in his friend's apartment or whether his friend was okay. After interviewing Kathy Nugent at the Sunburst, finding Carpenter's car was a top priority for this investigative team. According to John Hook in his book, Who Killed Bob Crane? The Final Close-Up, Carpenter's rental had been a new blue and white Chrysler Cordoba that the police tracked to a nearby dealership, where it had been taken to fix the taillight issue. When officers arrived at the dealership to inspect it, they found a streak of what looked like dried blood on the switch for the electric window and, quote, Several other small spots and smudges of what appeared to be dried blood, end quote, all on the passenger side door. Being 1978, there was no DNA testing, but they could do blood typing. Blood taken from Crane during the autopsy was compared to the blood from the car. Both were type B positive, one of the rarer blood types found in only 9% of the population. After going through many other alternatives, They came to the conclusion that Carpenter had killed Crane with a blunt instrument, wrapped the murder weapon in a towel, and put it in the front seat of this car. But the towel didn't cover the entire weapon, allowing for the transfer of blood onto the passenger side door. Police never found the murder weapon, believing that Carpenter either dumped it somewhere or packed it in a suitcase and took it back to California. Scottsdale police flew to Los Angeles on July 1st to have their first conversation with John Carpenter. Careful not to show their hand, they framed their visit as a simple interview with the victim's best friend and one of the last people to see him alive. Carpenter recounted his time in Scottsdale, claiming ignorance about the blood found in his rental car, and answered questions about the nature of his relationship with Crane. Not satisfied, the detectives asked if he would be willing to go back to Arizona, and on July 2nd, that's where they all flew. While one team of detectives flew Carpenter back to Arizona, others on the team were interviewing staff at the various watering holes around Scottsdale. Linda Robertson, a server at Bobby McGee's nightclub and restaurant, told them she had witnessed a tense argument between Crane and Carpenter only two days before the murder. Described in the book, Who Killed Bob Crane, the conversation was not relaxed, with Robertson saying, quote, I think they were trying to keep it down some because there were people sitting next to them, end quote. Police would later describe this conversation as a breakup, with Crane trying to extricate himself from Carpenter, hoping to cool their relationship. So to recap, we've got one murdered man who was still marginally famous, and one man whom the police believed to be the murderer. Blood matching Crane's type was found in Carpenter's rental car. Carpenter was one of the last people to see Crane alive. He then hurriedly left the next day to go back to California, and he had no verifiable alibi for the hours of the murder. Two weeks after his first interview, Carpenter was brought in for another one. But by the end of that interrogation, it was clear the police had no real evidence against him. So when Carpenter walked out of the Scottsdale Police Department in July 1978, he was a free man, free to fly back to Los Angeles, albeit under a cloud of suspicion. According to an article in the Santa Cruz Sentinel, Crane was buried in the Oakwood Memorial Park after a Catholic Mass at St. Paul the Apostle Catholic Church in Westwood, California, on July 6th. Attending the funeral were Hogan's Heroes co-stars, and other actors like Carol O'Connor, John Astin, and Patty Duke Astin. While the homicide was officially categorized as a cold case, detectives were still assigned to it throughout the years. By 1990, the detective in charge was Barry Bassel. He had been one of the first officers on the scene in 1978 and had been working the case ever since. According to author John Holt, A turning point came with the 1988 election of Maricopa County attorney Rick Romley. Having run on a tough anti-crime platform, he promised voters he could prosecute all cases, not just the ones that seemed easy. Vassell teamed up with Jim Rains, a former detective who worked as an investigator for the county attorney's office, to take a fresh look at the 10-year-old Crane case. While looking through the evidence, they stumbled upon their white whale something that had been missed in the initial investigation. In a photograph taken of the Cordoba's passenger door, they saw a, quote, "...tiny bright red speck near the stitching on the blue vinyl above the door handle. A metal ruler next to the speck measured it to be no longer than one-sixteenth of an inch in diameter." End quote. But under magnification, that little speck looked like human tissue with a small thread of hair attached. Looking at all of the photos from the file, they saw similar specks all over the crime scene, on the walls, on the pillow, on Bob Crane's bed. They showed the photos to the medical examiner who bolstered their suspicions by saying that the specks appeared to be consistent with human fat tissue and a human hair follicle with brown hair. Another question they wanted answered was the matter of the murder weapon. Not only had it never been found, but it had never even been identified. They had considered everything they could think of. Tire irons, golf clubs, rebar, and more. Detectives assumed that the weapon had been dumped, maybe into an irrigation canal that conveniently ran directly behind the windfield. After a two-week search by a dive team, the only things they found were abandoned shopping carts and other junk. Even when the canal was later drained by the city's water authority for routine maintenance, nothing resembling a murder weapon was found. It wasn't until the new investigators consulted Phoenix police criminologist Ray Giesel that they finally hit upon a likely weapon a tripod. Not only did a camera tripod fit the wound impression, but it matched a blood transfer left on the bed sheet. Plus, according to videos shot in Crane's apartment, He had two quick-set junior tripods, one for a video camera and one for a still camera. Yet only one was found when police cataloged his belongings. Police now were convinced that Carpenter was the murderer and they felt they had enough evidence to go to the prosecutor's office. On June 1st, 1992, nearly 14 years to the day after Crane's death, John Carpenter was arrested by the LAPD. He made his way to Maricopa County for his trial to begin on September 12, 1994. As convinced as the detectives were in their evidence, the prosecution faced an uphill climb. It had been 16 years since the murder now, 16 years since witnesses had been interviewed, 16 years since police had made their notes. Those who had collected the evidence didn't remember doing it without looking at those notes. Since no one thought the spec was important, it wasn't preserved. All they had to work with was the photograph of the evidence. And when Crane's estranged wife, Patty, testified, presumably to talk about how Crane always traveled with his camera equipment, including his tripods, she also testified about the sexual side of his life. This allowed Carpenter's defense attorney to show the jury, quote, that Crane's womanizing left a trail of people with ample motive to kill him, end quote. and that in turn undercut prosecutors' theory that Carpenter had turned deadly when Crane tried to distance from him. The judge's instructions to the jury as they left to begin deliberations dealt another blow to the prosecution. His instructions included a Willets instruction, which told the jury that if a piece of evidence was missing or couldn't be produced, Like, say, a tissue speck, then the jury could disregard it. Problem for prosecutors was that while they had pictures pointing to this evidence having once existed, they didn't have any actual samples because none had been collected in the original investigation. Without that piece of evidence, the jurors, who admitted they believed Carpenter was the killer, didn't feel like they had crossed that beyond a reasonable doubt threshold. And so, on October 31st, 1994, John Carpenter was found not guilty of the 1978 murder of Bob Crane. Carpenter returned to California, where he died of a heart attack four years later in 1998. Now, not everyone in Crane's orbit is convinced Carpenter got away with murder. The younger Robert Crane has serious questions about his former stepmother, Patty, because... My
1: dad's will, a codicil, was added to his will, eliminating me and my two sisters, the three children from the first marriage, from his will.
0: All of Crane's personal items were returned to Patty, who had still been his legal spouse at the time of his death in 1995, and the case files were packed away. But some amateur sleuths were determined to solve the case. The final five chapters of John Hook's book covers his own investigation into the case and concludes that Carpenter was indeed the murderer of Bob Crane. But as it was with the 1994 court case, the evidence is circumstantial. Hook had managed to track down the original blood evidence from the case in 2016, and he arranged to have it tested for DNA, but the report that came back was disappointing. No DNA sequencing could be done. The only result they were able to get was that the blood was from a male contributor. Even with modern technology, this murder remains unsolved. Bob Crane brought laughter to millions with his charming smile as he and his heroes made fools of Nazis for six seasons. His brutal murder surprised many, but revelations about his sex life, especially those on display in the 2002 biopic Autofocus starring Greg Kinnear as Crane, were the most surprising for his fans, and surely the reason that this case has managed to capture the public's imagination to this day. To research this story, historian and writer Jen Erdman relied on several books, including Robert Graysmith's The Murder of Bob Crane, Robert Crane's Sex Celebrity and My Father's Unsolved Murder, and John Hook's Who Killed Bob Crane? The Final Close-Up. I dug up and listened to a lot of Crane's early interviews and radio appearances and watched some videos that posited a supernatural reason for Bob Crane's death. of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to CenturiesPod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries Podcast Facebook page.